1: Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. that's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
0: This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Rumors start to spread that the crown prince is going to commit patricide. And that kind of triggers the crown prince's mother into telling the king, like, you should probably get rid of our son before he kills you.
0: I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. And they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Have you ever heard of the Rice Chest Prince? It's a real story from Korean history, and it's a fascinating look at the dynamic between a king and his son and how it turned so tragic. Author June Hur explores her culture in her novel, The Red Palace, as she uses the prince's story for inspiration. So this story, I mean, let's first talk about your book. You had a real true crime story in history, which is right up my alley, that inspired your book because you're a novelist. You're not a narrative nonfiction writer. So, tell me first about your career in writing before we pivot to why this inspired you, this real story inspired you. Tell me kind of what the origin story is.
1: Yeah. So, My origin story is I actually started off writing British historicals. I fell in love with Pride and Prejudice when I was 12 and I wrote Pride and Prejudice fan fiction for years and then I kind of moved over to British historicals and when I was in high school, I went to Korea for high school and I didn't really understand the language. I was failing in class And school usually starts in the morning and it ends at 11 p.m. And so I'm stuck there Mm. for the whole day. And so it became my writing boot camp, basically. I would spend my whole day just writing, writing, writing. And that's where I decided I wanted to become an author. But then after spending 10 years writing my British historical, it wasn't getting anywhere. And so finally, I kind of took a break. And when I came back to writing, I was like, you know what? Let's take a break from British history. As much as I love British history... Let's search for other histories I'm interested in. And that's when I decided to give my own history a try, Korean history. And when I started reading some articles up on it, I fell madly in love with it. And I was like, I'll just give it a try. Like it probably won't get Polish, but I'll try to write a book. And then somehow it turned into a mystery. I've always loved mystery, but I never thought I was smart enough to write a mystery. But I'm like, you know what? History itself is a mystery. And so Mm -hmm. using mystery became my vehicle, uh, my way of exploring the past of Korea.
0: If you are a novelist, a fiction writer who is interested in doing a mystery, true crime, where do you start looking for inspiration in
1: history? I try to find as many primary sources as I can. When it came to my other books, it was tricky because a lot of the primary sources aren't translated into English. It's easy for me to look up secondary sources, but I've had trouble finding primary sources besides letters and so on. But when it came to the Red Palace, I had an entire memoir written by the crown prince's wife. And so I basically used her memoir as my kind of foundation for plotting. So I basically studied the book and I wrote out the timeline of the book. And so for me, it was just figuring out where in the timeline did I want it to begin. And then from there, I would take history And I tried not to, like, fiddle too much with the actual history, and I used that to shape the plot of the story. You made up dialogue, though? Most of the dialogue was made up, but when it came to the glimpses we get between the prince and the father, that was either inspired by what I found in the memoir or word for word taken from what he actually said.
0: I can't imagine writing fiction. I am not that creative. I don't think. I think I would have to find some kind of an inspiration. And this story is a hell of a story to base your novel on because I had never heard of it. And I often say the deader the better for me. (laughs) I really like old, old, old crime. I do. Because I think you read these stories and you just realize the themes just are the same as they are now. They felt the same way. There were the same motives for killing. The reactions were the same. Oftentimes, the victims reacted similarly than we would in 2023. So I think this story is really interesting. And I'm assuming that this really unlocked within you a creativity and also, of course, an interest in where you're from and from your culture.
1: Yes. So... I've actually been fascinated by Crown Prince Hado for many years. Ever since I began researching for my first book, he kept popping up. Like whatever history I'm exploring about Korea, his name comes up often. And I didn't realize that until I actually started studying about Crown Prince Hado. And then I realized he's such a central point towards the more modern side of Korean history, like the 19th century, he has impacted and shaped so much of politics and just the psyche of royals that learning about who he is and his tragedy and also his violence and so on, it helped me understand that latter half of the Chosun period. It's interesting because I actually grew up with stories about him. My mom would call him the rice chess prince and I'd be like, what is that rice chess prince? And I kind of, You know, brush it aside until I got older. And that curiosity helped me learn about him. And it was really heartbreaking, but also very disturbing. And it raised a lot of questions, which I'll hopefully be able to talk more about later on.
0: Well, let's start from the beginning. Where are we in history in Korea? What is happening in Korea? Who's ruling it?
1: So we are in 18th century Korea. And this period was called the Joseon Dynasty. And basically, the Joseon dynasty lasted from 1392 to 1897. This period is when it was known for cultural achievements, including the development of the Korean alphabet, which is known as Hangul. And during this time, Korea was very hierarchical and Confucianism was the dominant philosophy. So basically, the king was seen as the top of the social hierarchy And the king during this time was King Youngjo, and the king was seen as the link between heaven and earth. And then beneath him was the aristocrats, and they were known as Yangban. Women were expected to be subservient to men, and they had very limited education and very limited opportunities to even work. It was a very strict time for women during this period. And women come into play
0: to a certain extent to me in a very surprising way in this story later on. Let's talk about wealth. I know wealth can be relative in certain kingdoms. Mm -hmm. What was the wealth like for this family, for this royal family in Korea in the 1700s?
1: maybe it's because of the confucian values it wasn't so much wealth but they focused a lot on academics like what does it mean to be a benevolent king mm-hmm. what does it mean to be a true follower of confucian teachings and so i know in the this latter half of the chosen period there was a lot of emphasis on simplicity Before, in the earlier period of Korea, they would wear like elaborate wigs with a lot of adornments. Mm -hmm. But then as we move on towards the latter half of this period, women would simplify a lot when it comes to fashion and even makeup. They went more towards like, try to look like you're not wearing makeup. Hmm. When I was studying the memoirs, I never read any mentions of wealth. Considering Korea was a hermit kingdom and they were a vassal state to China. They were overall a poor country, but I'm not sure how rich the royal family was compared to the overall poorness of the Koreans.
0: Well, let's talk about the king and the queen. We would refer to her as the queen, though, even though there's a concubine there. Yes. Can you explain the system and what the various wives were to the king? Because the story centers on his children from his favorite concubine. Is that right?
1: hmm So there is the king, the queen, and then he has concubines who are usually— court ladies that he's come to favor. And so he raises them in rank. So the court ladies would become concubines or any woman he takes an interest in officially becomes a concubine. And concubines usually have the status of a wife, like the privileges of a wife. Unless, of course, he forgets him. One step above the concubines are the royal consorts. So they are the concubines that he particularly favors. And they have even more power over the court and more prestige and respect.
0: But there's one queen, is that right? Yes, there's one queen. Okay. So he has two children, but one died, I think, when he was very young, like nine. Mm -hmm. And then we have the crown prince, who is the center of the story. So the memoir that you've read is the woman who would eventually become the wife of the crown prince, who is at the center of the story. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of information about her time, which my understanding is they were married when they were eight years old.
1: Yes they were married really young. And I think that it was a custom back then to have them betrothed and married at a young age.
0: And my understanding was that they were playmates, essentially. Mm -hmm. But as the crown prince gets older as the only son, the person who's going to take over for his father, we're learning a lot about the dynamic between the father and the son. So can you describe first what the king is like, not towards the people who are underneath him, but towards his son specifically, he seems very abusive.
1: Oh, yes, very abusive. So it's really sad because when the crown prince Hado was born in 1735, he was the only surviving male heir. And so when he was born, just imagine your only son, future king is born And he was exhilarated. He absolutely adored his son when he was first born. And I think because of this excitement, when the prince was only 100 days old, he took the son away from the mom and he put him in the official residence of the crown prince. And this was far on the other side of the palace. And Crown Prince Hadou was basically raised by strangers, by palace women and eunuchs and not by his mother. And so that's how he was raised. And still at this time, the father really adored his son. So he would still come visit his son. He'd even stay overnight to just spend more time with his son. And then when he was around five years old, that's when the relationship started to sour. Almost over nothing because the king would get annoyed by little things like little imperfections about his son. And I'm not sure what Lady Haegyeong meant by that in the memoirs. But I'm thinking, you know, just imagine a toddler. Yeah, (laughs) They're messy. They're sometimes annoying. And I think just that maybe overwhelmed the king. And there are theories that the king was a perfectionist and he was all about becoming that perfect virtuous ruler. And then when he saw his toddler, he was like, oh my goodness, this is chaos. And so that's when things start to fall apart. Starting at age five, they already have? Yeah. Oh, boy.
0: So it doesn't seem like as he gets older that all is right with the crown prince, even aside from his father being increasingly abusive. He starts to show some erratic behavior as he gets a little bit older. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: All that I know, most of it is based on the memoirs, along with articles I read on the psychology of the prince. One thing I want to make clear is like just because someone has mental health issues, it doesn't make them violent. Mm -hmm. Um, There's several factors that led to the prince's downfall. But based on the memoirs, we see, as you mentioned, the king is growing more abusive, And this abuse takes form in basically the king humiliating the son. Even when there was like a storm, the king would be like, there's a storm because of the prince's lack of virtue. Because back then, any kind of natural disaster was connected to the lack of virtue among the ruling class, among the royal family. And so you have this intense pressure from the father being like, you're not perfect. Why are you not studying? Why are you just like playing all day? And so from there, we start to see the prince deteriorating. And I think one of the most obvious thing was the prince had a lot of trouble trying to figure out what to wear. Hmm. The court ladies would be super terrified every morning because they'd have to dress him. But he'd have to go through almost a hundred robes to be like, okay, this is what I'm going to wear. And one of the theories as to why he was like so paranoid about what he'd wear was because each time he went out wearing something, his father would be like, why are you looking so disheveled? Like, why is this not tied properly? Or why does your pants look like that? And it was like constant criticism after criticism. And so one of the theories is that he was so terrified of wearing clothes because he knew the criticism that would come from his father from that. So that was like one sign that something was not well with him. There were words that triggered him, and he was terrified of looking up at the sky. And so there was like, yeah, all these kind of symptoms. I don't know what they stem from, but all I know is that there was a lot of anxiety and terror in him.
0: And like you said, his father was blaming him for an awful lot. And his father, as the crown prince grows older, looks at him and starts to say, I don't know if this is (laughs) going to work as somebody who is the heir to this throne. Do you have any idea about how the crown prince's mother was toward him? I'll tell you what I have read. I had read that the crown prince's mother was really just mostly concerned with, I'm assuming, not being punished by her husband and just let everything happen. And you're right. He had been raised on his own. Do you get that impression that the mother was not really part of this picture right now?
1: When I was reading the memoirs, she was mostly absent Mm -hmm. when— Disaster struck and the prince caused trouble or there was a heated argument between the father and the crown prince. I never really read of like, you know, the mother trying to come in to interfere or to stand up for him. It was Lady Hyegyeong, and there were older female figures. I believe like the Dowager Queen, they were the ones that stood up for the prince. There's a mention in the book that his relationship with his father deteriorated when the guardian figures basically died off from old age. And so Lady Haegang mentioned how the prince was totally alone in the palace, even when his mother was alive. So that kind of suggests to me that his mom was not his ally.
0: Now, you mentioned how important education was for the men in Korea in this time period, particularly as a member of the royal family. Did he do well
1: in scholastics? Do you know? No, he didn't. Oh,
0: so that was a big problem, I'm
1: sure. That was the central problem. Oh, boy. He was more interested in the military arts and in painting. So even if you look online, if you Google Crown Prince Hado's artwork, like you see this beautiful, stunning illustration of a dog But the king totally looked down on this and he thought his son was pampered and frivolous. And most of the arguments stemmed from the prince's poor marks. And so in the memoirs, you see these really sad instances of even on the crown prince's birthday, The father would have the son join this basically assembly filled with officials and scholars. And he'd start quizzing the son and he'd be like, explain this Confucian text and Mm. explicate it. And the crown prince would be stammering because he's afraid. And the father would always rebuke the son for being like, why are you talking so slowly? And it's because he's afraid. He's like, oh my gosh, I might say something wrong. And so the father would rebuke the son in front of everybody, humiliate him totally he thought his son was not smart enough to be the king. East Asia was very focused on virtue being tied to the king and how virtue is created from studying. That was like that Confucian mentality. The idea of a virtuous king, a well-studied king was very central in this period to what would make a good king rather than you know power itself. Another thing was King Youngjo, when he became king, there were rumors that he became king by poisoning his own brother. What? Wait, where did that come from? Really? <laughs> yeah, so there were rumors that King Yongzhou gave his brother soy crab or something and that poisoned him. But it's just speculation. And people say that's probably not true, but that's the rumor he grew up with. And so there was this terror in the king that people would not see him as good enough. And so I think that kind of solidified in the king this need to prove that he was a worthy and benevolent and good king. And so because of that, I think he was super harsh on his son who wasn't really up to par with him, who didn't study as hard, didn't try to be as virtuous. Yeah, there was a lot of baggage from the king that he just projected everything on his son.
0: So I'll summarize also with a little bit I know. So we have a very insecure and powerful king mm-hmm. who is prone to abuse and perhaps violence. We have an absent queen. We have a young man who is becoming more erratic as he grows older, more insecure, is being abused. He's married but boy, what I read was that she was not particularly interested in marrying into this family. And now pretty soon we're going to all find out why. Is that the impression you got from her memoirs? That she she was very intelligent and came from some interesting lineage. She was very smart and had no interest in this family and just
1: felt like she had to do it. So that is a fact. So Lady Hagen's mom actually didn't want to submit her daughter as a candidate to be selected for the crown prince's wife. The father did it anyways. Hmm. And so you have this scene of the daughter sleeping in between her mom and dad and they're just she's just bawling because she doesn't want to leave her parents. But she's forced into the palace and not a lot of people back then wanted to have that palace life because it's very restrictive Mm. you can't just leave the palace whenever you want it as a palace woman or as the wife of one of the royals and so yeah she did not want to enter the palace life but she did and she got married without knowing what would happen down the road
0: So they have children together. This culminates when he is 27. They're both 27, I think. Both husband and wife are 27 when some of this starts to happen. They have a few children, and life goes on. He continues to not do well under his father. His father is getting older and becoming more abusive. When do things take a turn in the palace that are violent? Right now, it's abusive, and I know the King is physically abusing servants, which is no surprise. When do either of these men become violent?
1: So the violence begins on the part of the crown prince in 1757. The first murder that's recorded occurs when Crown Prince Hado kills his eunuch, basically decapitates the eunuch, and he takes the head and he shows it to his wife. Okay,
0: go back. Explain, first of all, what a eunuch is.
1: So eunuchs were... Men who were castrated and they were the only men allowed in the palace overnight visits the idea that all palace women belong to the king and they don't want men who are capable of seducing the king's women. Mm. That's one reason why eunuchs became palace attendants. And so that they're basically servants. I didn't see any explanation for why Crown Prince Hado killed this eunuch, but he was killed and the head was shown to his wife. That was the first recorded instance of the prince killing someone in the palace.
0: Now, you must tell me from the memoirs, what does the crown prince's wife, what is her reaction to
1: being shown the head of one of the servants? She doesn't dive too deep on her response. All I read was she just kind of escaped that scene. And then they just kind of move along (laughs) to the next incident.
0: So the first major incident happens in 1757, where he kills a servant, chops his head off, and presents it to his wife. And this is just blown over. Do you know if the king knew about this? He must have known about it, I assume.
1: I didn't even know how to respond to this passage in in the book. So I was reading and I remember just highlighting because I'm like, what? I couldn't just wrap my mind around it. So you would assume the king would follow his trend of being like, what? My son is not virtuous. Like, you are horrible. But the king's response when he found out was, and I actually even wrote it down, the king tends to be exacting and difficult on small matters but on large matters of gravity, he is surprisingly calm. Thus, when he heard the prince had killed many people because he was hurt, quote unquote hurt, he responded rather sympathetically and even consoled his son. I'm like, what? What does hurt mean? Do you know? So from what I read, the prince was basically like, you hurt me, you were very basically emotionally abusive to me, and so he hurt others because of his pent-up anger. That was the gist I got from that word hurt.
0: So, there's a murdered servant that has been obviously covered up. What happens next? That was 1757, and we're still five years away from Mm -hmm. this retribution that is leveled against the prince. What happens next with the prince after that?
1: So, the eunuch was the first murder, and then... I read about how basically he would go on a killing spree within the palace. Like I think even there were people murdered because of his clothing incident. Like If he didn't like what he wore, he'd kill his attendants. Sometimes he would sneak out of the palace and random people would die as well. There weren't too much details of who he murdered, but just that bodies ended up showing up. But the next more detailed account of the person he killed was actually his concubine, her name was Pinge. And from what I read, he really loved her and he made her his concubine, despite the king being like, No, you cannot make this girl your concubine. But he's like, I really love her. She's mine. And they became a pair. But then one day, I think he had a fight with his father. He just went and beat the girl up until she died. There was a mention about how he didn't even know he'd killed her. So he went on like acting like nothing had happened. And it didn't hit him that his favorite concubine was dead. And I think it just shows what kind of state he was in. Because I remember even reading that um, Lady Haegang, his wife was pregnant and I think his child died and it didn't hit him either. Like he seemed like kind of untethered and not aware of his surrounding and the violence he was causing or the pain that was inflicted on him. He was just, like, in a state of numbness or something.
0: Okay, so people are showing up dead. The more stress that his father puts on him and then whatever mental illness he might be suffering from or something, it's coming out in violence. When does the king start to become alarmed because the king's wife, who is the crown prince's mother, is dying at some point? That incident, from what I read, seems to be a big trigger for both the king and the crown prince.
1: So there's that growing pressure on the prince, like mentally, and the king is very dissatisfied with with his son, and the king is also under pressure. There's this mention about how the crown prince, whenever the father is meeting with his advisors, the crown prince mentions that the father is probably criticizing the son, and the king is basically trying to figure out how do I get rid of my son? Because now he has someone next in line for the throne, which is the crown prince's son now. So his the king's grandson now is next in line for the throne. King Yongjo dotes on his grandson. He actually compares his grandson to his own son. So he'll tell crown prince Hado, like your son is better at studying than you are. Mm. And so now that he has a successor, he's starting to wonder like, what do I do with the crown prince? And back then the rule was you're not allowed to harm a royal person. And to complicate things, if the king were to execute his son, in Korea, they had this idea of communal punishment. So to execute his son would make the crown prince's own son a criminal. And so he couldn't do that too. And so each time the king is meeting with advisors, they're trying to figure out like, how do I, how do we get rid of the crown prince? And it gets to a point towards 1762, where just for fun, the crown prince builds this mound and inside he stores all his military weapons just for fun, according to the theories. And he has no intention of killing his father. But rumors start to spread that the crown prince is going to commit patricide. And that kind of triggers the crown prince's mother into telling the king, like, you should probably get rid of our son before he kills you. That's how we get to the point where the king decides, like, he really needs to find a way to get rid of his son.
0: What's confusing to me is if the crown princess killed all of these other people, servants and all of that, is there no way where you can just imprison him or send him to an asylum or put him in a dungeon and have him disappear? Or would people find out and that would break some sort of rule within the royal family? It just seems like this guy has been so violent. There has to be something that could have been
1: done. Yeah, I think they just had to make sure that no matter what they did, they couldn't tarnish the successor's reputation and back then because that idea of communal punishment was so ingrained in the people they can do nothing to make the crown prince look like a criminal in any way and i think also like there was no sense of like mental health awareness as well and so there was no way to like get around the idea of the crown prince being like evil and worthy of punishment When I think about it, I don't know why it was so complicated, but I guess it's because I don't have that mindset from someone like hundreds of years ago. Like I can't imagine why they couldn't think outside of that rule that you can't harm the body of a royal person. That was the rule and it seems they had to play within that boundary.
0: So now we're in the summer of 1762, and the crown prince has killed people and has terrorized people and is deteriorating with his mental health. And there is an incident that happens that enrages the crown prince and really seems to trigger everything that happens after that. Tell me what happens between the crown prince and an official at the court that just
1: is a trigger for a lot of things. So Crown Prince Hado gets super enraged by the official son and he says he wants to seek revenge and he attempts to sneak through a water passage to the upper palace to kill this official son and he fails to do that. So instead, what he does is he just takes the official son's clothing and items. And then from this incident, rumors start spreading that the Crown Prince is trying to enter the upper palace to kill King Yongjo and that spreads through the court. So from this incident with the official son, it triggers this rumor that, you know, he's going to commit treason. Mm-hmm. So this is when the Crown Prince Hado's mom begs King Yongjo to just execute her son. This is where the nickname of the Crown Prince being the prince in the rice chest comes from. Because King Yongjo orders Hado to step into a wooden rice chest.
0: And this is small. It's four square feet. I mean, that is not... Super tiny. That is not big, yeah. So he's forced into this chest.
1: So in in order to fit into it, like you have to crouch your head towards your torso. Your legs have to be shoved up against your chest. It's super small. You can't relax in there. He didn't go in willingly. He begged for his life and he tried to climb out again and again. They forced him back in. And up until the seventh day, like if you were there, you'd probably hear him crying out for help up until the day of his death.
0: Was his wife there? Do you know?
1: She was in the palace. So I assume she probably did hear him.
0: Do we have any idea how long this whole process, which is just terrible to even think about, how long this whole process took? He was pronounced dead
1: on the eighth day, but it took seven days.
0: So no water, no food for seven days, crying, screaming, defecating on himself, all of that. Just terrible. I think it's important to have those details to just understand what torture this would have been. I mean, that's
1: unreal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he was placed in there seven days. He died officially from starvation. It's just horrific trying to imagine it. And if you go to the palace in Korea, they actually have a sample of a rice chest on display. Mm. And, you know, you'll see photos of people like trying to crouch into it to fit into it. But it's super horrific. And yeah, he was just like roped into it to be sealed within. He was also covered with grass. I think maybe the grass part was to kind of muffle the sound. Because he was making noise.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So he is, and this just sounds so terrifying to me, he is forced into this rice chest. It's locked, and he is left in there. And this is all under the orders of the king. The king is not there. And... Eventually, he dies of dehydration, starvation, and all of that. One thing that I thought, besides this just being an incredible tragedy, because, you know, you have this imperfect victim, obviously, somebody who has been killing people at whim and who was very violent, but clearly was suffering under an abusive father, clearly was suffering under some kind of mental illness or or something— all of it exasperated by being in a situation that is so stressful as in being in this royal family. You know, now that his life has ended, does his son, you know, become the successor? Does he
1: become king eventually? When it came to the son, the crown prince's son, I think that is where a lot of the tragedy stems from because the king basically put down a ban saying no one is allowed to talk about the crown prince. So the crown prince's name was actually Crown Prince Changon during his lifetime. And then after his death, his posthumous title was Crown Prince Sado. And Sado actually means thinking of with great sorrow. Hmm. So that name is just like, oh my gosh, it's really sad. And that's the title that the king gives to the son that he killed. And no mention is allowed. No one is allowed to talk about the crown prince And the son, the king's grandson, in order to kind of avoid this whole scandal, so there was, the father was killed in a race chest. So that is one way of avoiding it, but to kind of disconnect him entirely from this entire situation, he gets adopted by another royal. So he's taken away from his mom's lineage and made the son of another royal. And so he grows up not being able to talk about his father for the rest of King Yongjo's reign. And when the son becomes king, and his title is King Chongjo, when he ascends the throne, it's interesting because the first thing he says when he ascends his throne is, I am the son of Crown Prince Hado. Hmm. So it kind of shows us how much pain he was bottling in throughout the reign of his grandfather. And so yeah, when he becomes king, he says, I'm the son of Crown Prince Hado. And he actually builds an entire fort it's called the Hyesung Fort in Suan, and he built an entire fort around his father's grave. Hmm. And I think the son actually had a deep love for his father, um, seeing how much he did for him. When we study the life of King Chongzhou, you see he was also very deeply traumatized by what went on between King Yongzhou and Crown Prince Hado.
0: And I want to go back because I think this is an important point. So the crown prince, when he died, I'm not quite understanding the rule here, but (laughs) his wife was expected to take her own life after that. If he had been murdered or if he had taken his own life, she would then take her own life, but the king liked her so much that he got her out of it. Is that what your understanding is? Is it because being killed was a disgrace
1: and the wife needed to follow suit it's not so much the king expected it of her, but the tradition during the Joseon period was when your husband dies, it's considered noble of a wife to follow the husband in death. Ugh. That is like the ultimate obedience. That was seen as something to be praised. What I know is that King Yeongjo really adored the crown prince's wife. So because of that affectionate relationship between the father-in-law and the crown prince's wife, She escaped the punishment and she was allowed to live. I remember just reading constantly, like even the crown prince Hado would mention, yeah, the king adores you, but he doesn't like me. I'm going to die, but he favors you. So he'd always emphasize that to his own wife as well.
0: Do you get an impression from her about what life must have been like with him while he was still alive with all of this killing and Mm. beating to death a concubine? And it must have just been pure hell for her.
1: Yeah, she was very stressed. So she'd always get super anxious, super terrified whenever the crown prince and the father got into arguments because the arguments would get really bad. And she'd always be afraid of what would happen to her husband and to her own son. And so I think there was a lot of just anxiety built up because the fate of her son and her own life depends on how the relationship goes between her husband and the king. I imagine a lot of stress.
0: What is her mark? on this in history as someone who obviously is the historian of the family, the person who has written all of this history down. Is that what she is known for, a survivor in all of this?
1: Yes, a survivor. And it was very rare during that time for women to even write books and hers is almost the the most thorough and accessible account of the crown prince's life. Hmm. So the other account would be court records. It's just court records and her book. Without her book, I'm sure we would get a very different account of the crown prince's life when it's just based through the court documents.
0: What were the themes that you took from those memoirs and the story for your book, which is fiction? It's a novel.
1: So for me, it was... The idea of power dynamics, because you see the crown prince going on his murder sprees and the king basically shrugs it off. And what concerns him more is his son's academic. And so that was really fascinating to me, the idea of how power really skews The notion of what is right and wrong. For me, the central theme was actually the relationship between a child and a parent figure. And I tried to kind of parallel the very toxic relationship between the crown prince and the king with the heroine, because I didn't really want to dive too deep into the crown prince's life in my book because, you know, he had a lot of mental health problems and I I didn't think I had the ability to portray it with justice. And so I kind of took what I learned from the dynamic between the father and son, and I projected it into the relationship between my heroine and her own father. A lot of times that pressure parents put on children, it could just lead them to snapping. And I wanted to explore that toxicity as well.
0: I think that's really interesting how you can take that inspiration. And I think you're right. You know, we just started this conversation saying that you can take these stories from history and translate them to themes that we can all relate to, right? That relationship, a fractured relationship between a parent and a child. I had read that the king had made an epitaph tablet. Essentially, you know, it was for the son. And it essentially said, I'm sorry that this happened, But it was his fault. And that just, I think, is the underlying complication of this story, which is that that complicated relationship mixed with just the violence and what do you do when you're desperate? And yet you are the problem. The king was part of the problem. So, boy, what a complicated story. What a great inspiration for
1: you to work off of. I had a lot of tension and drama to work into my story.
0: Did your parents get a chance to read your book? Were they pleased that you were pulling information from your culture and finally steering away a little bit from the British Isles and more towards, you know, your own history?
1: It's funny because my parents were like, oh, why would you write about Korea? That was their initial response. What? Really? Yeah. I don't know why. I think because they, you know, moved to the West and they went to the assumption like, oh, why would... Western readers want to read about Korea, they had a very old school mindset. And so when I told them initially, they're like, oh, but then now my mom is like my number one fan. And she's like, oh, June, you made me more patriotic to our country because <laughs> you made me appreciate Korean history more. And so, yeah, like my mom has read my book twice already. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's pretty gory, but I guess she's okay with it. <laughs>
0: Well, I think that's one of our jobs when you're writing about either historical fiction or historical nonfiction is to get people to care, you know, to talk about the people and why they mattered and how you can see those sorts of personalities now and how they're treated now versus how they're treated then. And such an appreciation for, you know, relationships that are positive in your life. So what a tragedy all the way around, but a really interesting part of Korean history. Thanks for
1: bringing it to me. Thank you for your interest in it.
0: If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Alex Chi. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at TenfoldMoreWicked and on Twitter at TenfoldMore. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at TenfoldMoreWicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.